棒！祝大家新春快乐，身体健康，万事如意，虎年吉祥！So South China Morning Post decided to show everyone how Chinese New Year's is being rolled out, the new lunar year, the year of the tiger. In the meantime, <laughs> our nation's going to crap in respect to the way things are being done, right, and how they're operating. They're still talking about, oh, we need to bring in. <clears throat> How did they say it? We need to bring in broadband to places. So here we are talking about getting on COVID passports, and some people don't even have the internet. How interesting! So interesting. Now let's see what the news have been telling us today.、Uh, there's people like Graham Nash and India Ari withdrawing music from Spotify because Spotify won't cancel Joe Rogan. So weird. So weird. Um, I, I, this cancel culture is totally insane.、Uh, other things that have happened is, you know, obviously we have that、uh, Myanmar. We had climate activists, so now they're testing what they're bringing here to the United States for March. Greta Thunberg, tons of steam. The Pope,、uh, Belarus、uh, opposition leaders. All the defenders of democracy were there to cry about climate change. Of course,、um, where I'm at today has a pretty sweet setup. It even has lights, so、um, I look poreless. <laughs> Just wanted to say that.、Um, something super bizarre, but expected. Putin is kind of shocked how U.S. and NATO have completely ignored what Russia has been saying, what they've been talking about security, because you know war. Even though nobody wants it, they do. It's um, it's starting to kind of build up against them. You know,、um, Prince Andrew is fighting back as well.、Um, his assistant's going to testify.、Um, In a civil case that Virginia Roberts Guffrey、uh, brought forward, and so that's pretty interesting because the personal assistant is now going to testify about communications that the prince had with Epstein. Now let's get something straight: the assistant is not going to flip on the prince because that would mean she's dead. So this is the way Judge Kaplan gets out of actually prosecuting. The case, which is bizarre, makes absolutely zero sense and shouldn't be happening. But this is how you get rid of a case by allowing it to move forward and subpoenaing people to testify that will not do you positive, but actually do you harm in your case. You know, If it's the second time the person is wrong, it must be important. So, give me one moment. Hold on. Give me one moment. Let me put on some one moment. Let me put on some breaking news. Supreme Court for you.、Um, while I quickly take this call, okay? Just, these are. This is what happens when I do like random stuff. Hold on. When I'm like not expecting to do things. So let's see. What Joe Biden had to say. You guys obviously have got this big nomination that you're working on, but there's also huge existential questions hanging over the Supreme Court. Does the president plan to decide what he's going to do on Supreme Court reform before he makes his nomination? He is, he is reviewing, reviewing the, the Supreme Court, Court Commission report. report. I, don't I don't have a prediction of when, when he, will he will conclude his analysis of that. Because the report includes suggestions about things like changing the number of people on the court, you would think he would want to know who is going to increase the size of the court. I'll call you right after. Who's going to put on first? I think Trevor's focus right now is on going through a process that takes it that that values the 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 seriousness of the role he has as president, that where he consults as you saw. Today, today, with Democrats, Democrats and Republicans, and Republicans、uh, to, to select, select and nominate an eminently qualified, qualified black, black woman to serve on the court. court. That's, That's his focus, focus right now. now.
There have been some ethical questions about um, uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Um, his wife is, has a number of political affiliations with groups that file amicus briefs before the court, have other business before the court. Um, it's his choice whether or not to recuse himself from those cases. He hasn't. Does the president feel that there is an ethical issue there that he'd like to see dealt with? I have I not, not uh, had, a had a discussion about, about that with, with the president, president or our council's office. office. I, will I will see if there's any comment we have from here. Okay, I just want to pause it on this guy. So, first of all, the mask. I just, I can't. I can't. I don't know how no one, how he, <laughs> I'm just saying, I don't care how mask Nazi you are. Um, um, that mask, your mask, sir, is distracting. Um, so <laughs> I can't, I can't. It's so huge. It is so massive. This guy has probably a woman to go home. I'm not even going to think about that. Let's just change the topic. Next. <clears throat> so moving along, I apologize um, I wasn't supposed to be on air because I'm, I'm waiting for a meeting, but I thought I'd say, hey, because I really wanted to tell you guys about West Virginia. And I wanted us to talk about West Virginia. So I thought I would start with the first introduction to it. This is a, a video from 1996. Um, it's actually a very important place and important for the presidency, especially when there's a distress. It's considered a location for continuity of government. And I wanted to introduce this to you um, because it is vital for American history. I'm sure a lot of you haven't even heard of it. So let's get right to it. It's the playground of the rich and mega rich. A place where for more than 200 years, America's elite have sought sanctuary. The Greenbrier nestled in the hills of West Virginia is quite simply one of America's grandest places. For generations, more than half the population of the hamlet of White Sulphur Springs worked there. But many suspected there was something more going on. They never talked about it. It was just one of those things that just nobody ever talked about. It was so concealed, we never knew what it was. The Greenbrier was the cover for one of the best-kept secrets of the Cold War. We're going into the fallout shelter where the legislative branch of government would reassemble in the event of a war. Fritz Bugis swore an oath never to reveal what was behind the mysterious door on the hill. But with the bunkers decommissioning, he can now reveal all. Well, how heavy is this door? This is a 25-ton blast door. Do you want to help me open it? <laughs> 25 tons of fibs. It's 10 feet high. Yeah. 12 feet wide, 18 inches thick, and it's made alternately of concrete and steel from top to bottom. How do you stop it? Nothing prepares a visitor for what's in store. Like a scene from a 1960s Cold War movie, a 120-meter-long tunnel is revealed, leading back under the hotel and back to another time. To avoid suspicion, the bunker was constructed at the same time as a new wing of the resort. The year was 1958. Eisenhower was president and times were good, but America was living under a nuclear shadow. The country feared Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev. Doomsday paranoia was a part of the American psyche. Even children were schooled in survival techniques, such as they were. We must be ready every day, all the time, to do the right thing if the atomic bomb explodes. Duck and cover. A career intelligence agent, Fritz Bugis, was the project manager of this top secret operation. 
a cover was needed. So he and his 15 employees were to be TV repairmen for the Greenbrier. But the company was a Pentagon front. It was perfect. Uh, we were working for the federal government, in, in fact. Uh, although our cover was that of a management and electronics consultant firm. In the event of a nuclear war, the newly arrived congressmen and women would be led to safety down the hill tunnel. First stop for the politicians may have been the decontamination chamber, a series of high-powered showers designed to remove nuclear fallout. Each would be assigned fatigues and then a bunk. There was room for a thousand people, politicians, their families and staff. There was one locker to be shared by four individuals. The government removed its furniture last year. What's there now is a recreation, except the tissues. That's from the year 1960. So it's been here a long period of time. With so many under the strain and uncertainty of nuclear war, there was a cache of small arms for crowd control. With radioactive illness possible, an underground hospital. For those who didn't make it, a crematorium. There was a dental clinic, a fully appointed kitchen, and cafeteria, complete with all the 1960s vinyl-covered chairs, all frozen in another time. Outside, a large metal box with a lid capable of lifting five tons of rubble reveals an eight-storey transmission tower. That's because the bunker is also a TV studio. And from this location, the Speaker of the House or Senate Majority Leader could have addressed a war-ravaged America. But to survive, they needed to be fully self-contained. So dried food was shipped in, enough for two months. Most ambitious of all, an underground life preservation system for the entire bunker. Downstairs was water storage and a massive power plant. Any one of these engines would generate enough power to run seven city blocks of home. Upstairs, contamination free oxygen, the lungs of the bunker. Ten minutes from the bunker, the local airstrip was extended to accommodate jumbo jets, like Air Force One which periodically undertook practice landings. This was the clue as to how the politicians would make the 300-kilometre journey from Washington to West Virginia in time to beat the bomb. There was a plan in effect. effect. Let, let, me, me, let, me let me leave it at that. Fritz Bugis's cover was blown by the Washington Post in 1992. The bunker was decommissioned last year. It's now a tourist attraction for resort guests. Bunkers for the Supreme Court, the President and his Cabinet have not been compromised and exist somewhere in America. Fritz Bugis left the Defense Department and is now a consultant to the Greenbrier. I would hope that there's some sort of uh, 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 means or ways to shelter our legislative branch of government since this particular facility has been compromised. So they really do tell you where they spend your money on them. But there's more. See, this is a cover to a cover. Right. So the Greenbrier is known also as Operation Greek Islands. I want to share that with you. This is a fantastic um, little snippet put together that it's just it's just so fascinating. Let's go. The luxury resort located in the Allegheny Mountains near White Sulphur Springs in Greenbrier County, West, West Virginia. Virginia. Since 1778, visitors have traveled to this part of the state to, quote, take the waters of the area. Today, the Greenbrier is situated on 1,100 acres of land with 710 guest rooms, 20 restaurants and lounges, more than 55 indoor and outdoor activities and sports, and 36 retail shops. In the late 1950s, the United States government approached the Greenbrier Resort and sought its assistance in creating a secret, secret emergency, emergency relocation, relocation center, center to house Congress in the aftermath of the nuclear holocaust. The, the classified, classified underground facility was built at the same time as the West Virginia Wing, an above ground addition to the hotel from 1959 to 1962. For 30 years, the Greenbrier owners maintained an agreement with the federal government that in the event of an international crisis, 
the entire resort property would be converted to government use, specifically as the emergency location for the legislative branch. The underground facility contained a dormitory, a kitchen, a hospital, and a broadcast center for members of Congress. The broadcast center had changeable seasonal backdrops to allow it to appear as if members of Congress were broadcasting from Washington, D.C. A 100-foot radio tower was installed 4.5 miles away for these broadcasts. The largest room is the exhibit hall. 89 by 186 feet beneath a ceiling, nearly 20 feet high and supported by 18 support columns. Adjoining it are two smaller auditoriums, one seating about 470 people, big enough to host the 435-member House of Representatives, and the smaller with a seating capacity of about 130, suitable as a temporary Senate chamber. The exhibit hall itself could be used for joint sessions of Congress. The facility had a six-month supply of food, periodically refreshed. The project used a cut-and-cover-style construction method for the creation of the bunker, where material known as spoil is removed from the surface and carried away from the site to create a space in which the bunker is constructed. In the case of the Project Greek Island Bunker, the spoil was used in the expansion of a nine-hole golf course and as fill material in a runway extension project at the local municipal airfield. This prevented detection of the project. The government used the West Virginia Wing construction of the hotel as a cover-up for the shelter. The shelter was made to house over a thousand people, including members of Congress. A huge vault door placed in the shelter was created so that one person could shut it. What was used by the Greenbrier guests for business meetings was actually a disguised work area for members of Congress, complete with four hidden blast doors. Two of the doors were large enough to allow vehicles to enter. One weighed more than 28 short tons and measured 12 feet by 3 inches wide and 15 feet high. Another weighed more than 20 short tons. The doors were 19.5 inches thick. The two-foot-thick walls of the bunker were made of reinforced concrete designed to withstand a nearby nuclear blast. The center was maintained by government workers posing as hotel audiovisual employees and operated under a dummy company named Forsyth Associates based in Arlington, Virginia. The company's on-site employees maintained that their purpose was to maintain the hotel's 1,100 televisions. The company's first manager was John Lundis, a former cryptographic expert with the Army Signal Corps. He had top-secret security clearance and was stationed at the Pentagon. Many of these same workers are now employed by the hotel and for a time gave guided tours. The complex is still maintained by the Greenbrier and the facility remains much as it was in 1992 when the secret was revealed in the national press. While almost all of the furnishings were removed following the decommissioning of the bunker, the facility now has similar period furnishings to approximate what the bunker looked like while it was still in operation. Two of the original bunks in the dormitories remain. The bunker was designed to be incorporated into the public spaces of the hotel so as to not draw attention. Much of the bunker space was visible to the public but went undetected for years, including the exhibition hall and the West Virginia wing which differs from other public spaces in the hotel due to large concrete columns present for reinforcing. Adjacent to the entrance of the exhibition hall is one of the original blast doors, which can now be seen openly the original screen that once hid its presence removed. AT&T provided phone service for both the Greenbrier Hotel and the bunker. All calls placed from the bunker were routed through the hotel switchboard to make it appear as if they originated from the hotel. The communications center in the bunker today contains representatives of three generations of telephone technology that were used. Although the bunker was kept stocked for 30 years, it was never actually used as an emergency location, even during the Cuban Missile Crisis.
The bunker's existence was not acknowledged until the Washington Post revealed it in a 1992 story. Immediately after the Post story, the government decommissioned the bunker. The facility has since been renovated and is also used as a data storage facility for the private sector. It is once again featured as an attraction in which visitors can tour the now declassified facilities now known as the bunker. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this video, please. So today you learned about a bunker because those don't exist, right? A bunker that, you know, people like Pelosi and Adam Schiff and Chuck Schumer will be swept away so that they can be safe because they're very important. You know, I was considering, you know, how else can we make things happen? Because I believe that, uh, you know, a lot of the things that have been done by all of us from the quo warrant toes to the letters written to the attorney generals, to the letters written to the commanders of the bases, to the federal lawsuits, to the writ of mandamuses have just caused them discomfort because it's not something you cannot report. It is not something you can ignore because it is record. I'm thinking, okay, so we've got New York covered with the New Yorkers, and we're going to go ahead with that. But what else can we do? I mean, we did give away a few years ago a few millions of dollars. I think it was, um, was it 50 or $75 million were given by Adam Schiff and the Pentagon to a guy named Igor Pasternak to not produce a prototype or produce any viable plans. But they gave him that money, our money, to think of blimps that could be used in espionage. So, I mean, when you give someone $75 million to think of something, they're either not thinking of something or they're doing something else. Kind of like how they gave this guy that makes blimps for a living money to make M16s and then fail because the bullets didn't match because the M16s or, that they were making were AK-47s. So confusing. I think that maybe... We can sue for our money back. What do you guys think? What if we just find one thing, like the M16s given to a blimp maker uh, in Ukraine, to, and they gave him millions of dollars, knowing that he had no experience in arms. I mean, he's just a blimp maker. Because they did give him, you know, 50 to $75 million of our money years before that. But after he threw a party for Adam Schiff to get reelected, um, just to think about blimps, like it clearly says, we just want you to think about it. Here's some money so you can think. I'm thinking maybe we should start. I mean, don't they ask you where you spend your money? Doesn't the IRS say, well, I want to know where you're spending your, your hard-earned money. You need to be accountable to me and see if you need to be giving me more money. Well, the question is, all right, you took my money. What did you do with it? Oh, you know, we just gave, you know, tens of millions of dollars to this guy to think of blimps or something like that. I'm thinking that this month we get some recompense uh, going. I think that we should possibly start asking the right questions. In court, maybe it's totally suable to say we paid, you know, what, what was it, 50 or 75 million dollars to an organization that was known by Congress at the time to not be subject matter experts in weapons to make M16s for another country and failed. 
So we want to know where the due diligence is because that's our money and someone should be held accountable for the money lost. Kind of like, hey, they gave him this money to think. I think that's waste, fraud, and abuse of my tax dollars. Because if you can audit me, I can audit you on how you use my money. So speaking of bunkers, there's one more you need to look at. And it's very important you look at these um, clips and listen to what they say very carefully. Because they're telling you it was in West Virginia, but it's been decommissioned because it was leaked. So it was identical to the Senate, to the White House. So it can look like they're talking from there. You know... Truth be said that even White House press sometimes has to sign non-disclosure agreements due to national security and unable to state locations sometimes. I just thought I would throw that in there. That's a fun fact. But here's another shorter clip about Operation Greek Island. Hidden in plain sight. That was the Cold War mantra for a handful of people who built and maintained for years a secret nuclear bunker nestled deep inside a mountain at the Greenbrier Resort in southern West Virginia. A 25-ton steel door swings shut. In the event of a nuclear attack on Washington, D.C., some 400 kilometers away, members of Congress would be locked safely inside with enough generator power, food, water, and beds to last weeks. It's a story Greenbrier historian Bob Conti has been telling a long time. This really captures a moment in time, a moment uh, that was filled with a lot of fear. We can't go discuss back to the, the mid-50s when, you know, at, at the flip of a coin, it seemed like the Soviet Union and the United States would be, would be sending bombers at each other. While schoolchildren practiced duck and cover, then-President Dwight Eisenhower cut a deal to build the bunker nicknamed Project Greek Island beneath one of the most plush resorts in the nation. Congressional members and limited staff would find themselves racing down this hall in the event of a nuclear assault. You have a sense that we're in a big concrete uh, uh, box here and um, we're not getting out. I mean, I, I think that, that tunnel more than anything else gives that sort of kind of creepy feeling, you know. This is where the decontamination process would begin. Lawmakers would be ushered in. They'd have to remove all their clothes and put them in this chute. From here, lawmakers are then ushered down a very narrow hallway. They're stripped naked, and now jets of water are blasting them as the decontamination process continues. Think about it. What the lawmakers are being asked to endure, they're probably disoriented. They've been rushed here from Washington, D.C. because the worst of the worst, a nuclear attack has happened. The next step is out this door. Lawmakers are brought into this small room. They are given fatigues, some ivory soap, vitalis for their hair, and some other toiletry items. And then they are prepared to stay in this bunker for who knows how long. The cots, the mattresses, the hospital, the intensive care unit remain just the same as they did in the early 1960s. The Greenbrier kept prying eyes away by placing high voltage signs on massive doors that served as the entrance to the bunker. I can remember stumbling upon this once back in the, the secret days. Former President Eisenhower's goal was to keep the legislative branch of the U.S. democracy up and running. I think it's pretty clear that the, the Capitol building probably wouldn't be there anymore. Uh, but the point was, we as an institution are here, and I think the goal is to prevent anarchy from breaking out across the country. It remained a closely guarded secret. Only the Speaker of the House of Representatives and the Senate Majority Leader knew about Project Greek Island. That is, until the end of the Cold War. In 1992, the Washington Post revealed the existence of the site. Once the cover was blown, the government decommissioned the bunker, and today, tourists pay to visit. Every nook and cranny in this bunker is filled with history, but I think I'm most impressed with just the story. The fact that this bunker was maintained in a state of readiness for over 30 years. 
This remained a secret for more than 30 years. And that leads people at the Greenbrier to wonder, what else is out there? I think 9-11 changed everything. So whatever happened after 9-11, they could have dug a whole bunch more holes in the ground after that. And, you know, we don't have a need to know here. What? You know, the man who ran this for years and years, I remember he said, when you're out of the loop, you're out of the loop. You know, when you don't have a need to know anymore. There is one thing the Greenbrier Bunker still has. It's place in history. And no one can take that away. Sean Caleb's CCTV, White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. So that was really interesting. We don't have the need to know. Um, it's one thing to take our president to a bunker during a time of war. But it's another thing when you usher 500 people that aren't that important with one foot in the grave, right? Because they're all like 100. I mean, how old is Nancy? Whatever her age is, Crypt Keeper, Crypt Keeper Squared is what she is, okay? We're paying for these elaborate bunkers. So they kept that one secret for 30 years, which means that they have other ones. And they say it's because of the Cuban Missile Crisis that, you know, all of this, like, occurred and why they had it, which we all know now the Cuban Missile Crisis wasn't a real thing, which, again... Here's another one. The Cuban Missile Crisis kind of reminds me of Ukraine today. Um, for those that don't, um, don't know what the Cuban Missile Crisis is, I think maybe we should explain it. And Hip Hughes is the best one. The concern is, did he make this after it was shown that it was a hoax? Um, let's see. From the end of World War II until 1962, the Western world led by the United States and the communist world led by the Soviet Union are on a continuous path of collision as the Cold War explodes all over the world. The two sides face off in direct, direct confrontation, confrontation in, in Berlin, Berlin and wage, wage proxy conflicts in Czechoslovakia, Albania, Greece, Korea, Laos, Vietnam, and Cuba. And for 13 days in October 1962, the world comes closer to nuclear holocaust than ever before. This is Time Ghost, the Cuban Missile Crisis. I'm Indy Nidell. The Cuban Missile Crisis does not begin in Cuba. It has its roots in Berlin, Italy, and Turkey. The domestic political situation in the U.S., facing the newly elected President John F. Kennedy, and in the USSR, where Nikita Khrushchev takes power after a harsh four-year struggle following Joseph Stalin's death in 1953. But leader of the Soviet Union is not a comfortable position in which to be. He faces an ailing economy, the solution for which the party believes is partly an increased sphere of global control and more client states. He faces demands for reform and liberalization at home, but also the expectation to carry out an aggressive foreign policy to protect Soviet interests. And an important part of that policy is the nuclear arms race, where the USSR is way behind the United States. From 1957 to 1962, the number of operational American nuclear warheads goes from around 5,500 to an estimated 25,540. Over that time, the Soviets go from 660 to 3,346. Enough explosive power to destroy planet Earth several times over, sure, but still not even close to an actual balance of power. After Kennedy's election, this situation will worsen for the Soviets. When President Eisenhower, Kennedy's predecessor, was still in office. The Cuban Revolution had ousted Fulgencio Batista and put Fidel Castro at the head of a now-communist Cuba. Despite extensive U.S. support, a close ally of the U.S. has fallen to communism. And according to Eisenhower's domino theory, more Latin American states will follow suit. And with revolutionary movements brewing all over the South American continent, that seems a plausible assumption. At first, the U.S. administration chooses to observe and tolerate Castro until he confiscates and nationalizes all American assets on Cuban soil. The U.S. answers with an embargo on Cuban goods and the economic isolation of Cuba. So in February 1960, Cuba enters into an economic alliance with the USSR. 
One month later, Eisenhower orders the U.S. military to start training Cuban expats for an armed counter-revolution. Now, unlike the Soviet economy, the American economy has been growing vigorously, despite a brief recession in 57 and 58. The U.S. avoided the destruction that befell the countries in which the Second World War had actually been fought and capitalized on a post-war global economy that desperately needed rebuilding. Despite this, though, there are deep divisions and challenges on the home front. There is the big fear that communism will spread throughout the world and destroy the American way of life or even result in another world war. What we oppose fundamentally is the aggressive nature of the communist state. It's unceasing effort to expand wherever it can, to grow bigger, to take over, to supplant. This deadly impulse toward aggression we oppose as a continual threat to peace. Also, when the USSR puts the first satellite, Sputnik, into orbit in 1957, the American public wrongfully concludes that they have fallen behind the Soviets in technological development as well, and assumes that the Soviet Union has passed them in the nuclear arms race. There are racial and social injustices that split the electorate, and the young and ambitious senator from Massachusetts named John Fitzgerald Kennedy says he will take on all of these issues at once. He runs his presidential campaign in 1960 on a promise of change. He will reform the country to improve equality and liberty for all. He will boost the economy by promoting technological advancement and commerce. And above all, he will be aggressive with the Soviets and close that perceived missile gap. The choice for you is clear. The choice is between those who sit still and look to the past and between those who look to the future. Between those who recognize that in this deadly age, when we are involved in a close and narrow competition for survival, for the maintenance of freedom around the globe, with our adversaries, the communists, the best that this country can do is none too good. And therefore, I come here today and ask your help in moving this country forward again. Now, until the late 1950s, the prime deployment method for nuclear weapons was bombs carried on planes. Rocket development, though, is creating a new way to deploy them much further away and with less risk of being prevented or intercepted. Intercontinental ballistic missiles, or ICBMs, can travel the globe in just dozens of minutes. Both the Soviet Union and the U.S. work feverishly to develop functioning ICBM programs. And on both sides, it's proving to be a real challenge. In 1958, the Gaetan Report is issued by the U.S. Air Force, which assumes that Russian ICBM deployment has reached at least 130 units and will increase to close to 1,500 by 1963. At the same time, an independent CIA report concludes that the USSR has about 10 deployable ICBMs. In reality, the Soviets have four, of which two are untested prototypes, while the U.S. has a couple dozen. By 1962, the United States has 177 ICBMs. The Soviet Union still has fewer than 40. The Eisenhower administration is well aware that the Gaetan report is erroneous and even suspects that the CIA report is an overestimation. But political opponents of that administration leak the report, and it's seized upon by Kennedy in his presidential campaign. So Kennedy hits the campaign trail promising to close the missile gap created by the Eisenhower administration's inaction in the arms race. Despite being repeatedly informed about the actual situation, Kennedy continues this rhetoric. Finally, in July 1960, Eisenhower summons both Kennedy and his running mate Lyndon Johnson to the White House and informs them personally of the actual situation. It is to no avail. For back on the campaign trail, Kennedy continues to slam Eisenhower for allowing the missile gap to arise. He even goes so far as to claim that he himself discovered the gap and coined the phrase. Kennedy's opponent, Richard Nixon, attacks Kennedy as being weak on fighting communism and, and too young to shoulder the challenges of the Cold War. We know the right way offered a way which would have lost us our friends in Latin America the tremendous outrage that they exploded with once he made that very silly and foolish and immature suggestion of his that we ought to intervene directly in Cuba. Now, of course, he's jumped off of it. But let me just say one thing with regard to that. Can America, in this time, 
afford a well-intentioned man, but a man who frankly doesn't know the situation and who says one thing today and another thing tomorrow. That kind of a man Mr. Khrushchev will make mincemeat of. That's what I'm talking about. Kennedy counters by upping the anti-communist rhetoric and continuing his claims about the non-existent missile gap. As the election approaches, the candidates are neck and neck. Kennedy barely ekes out the win with a margin of the popular vote of 0.17%, carrying four fewer states than Nixon, but winning 303 votes of the Electoral College. Allegations of voter fraud and irregularities follow, and the bitter, close campaign leaves Kennedy with a less than optimal amount of popular support. We now know that Kennedy and his brother, soon to be Attorney General Robert Kennedy, believed in a dialogue with the Soviets, but harsh measures against Cuba. And even before Kennedy took office, they opened a direct back-channel communication line to the Soviet Union through the spy Georgi Bolshakov, a highly positioned Russian intelligence operative with direct access to cruise ship. Now, this contact was reported to the FBI and CIA and was never covert. But as the situation between the superpowers deteriorates, it soon becomes a vital part of the regular intelligence and diplomatic operations of the Kennedy administration. And Kennedy has made public promises that he now needs to keep. One of his early actions as president will be to continue the planned covert invasion of Cuba already put in motion by Eisenhower. In April 1961, three months after taking office, he orders the invasion that will soon be known as the Bay of Pigs invasion. On April 17th, close to 1,500 CIA-trained Cuban exiles descend on Cuba's Bay of Pigs, supported by eight B-26 bombers and five supply ships. Facing them are 25,000 soldiers, 200,000 militia, and 9,000 police. And it does not take long before the invasion becomes a fiasco, and a very public fiasco. The reaction and condemnation by Cuba and the Soviet Union are swift and angry. And in the following months, Bobby Kennedy will meet Bolshakov a total of 19 times in order to try to patch up relations to little avail. The Kennedy administration continues to look for ways to overthrow or undermine the Castro government, though. But despite the situation in Cuba, a summit between Kennedy and Khrushchev goes ahead in June. The main topic on the agenda is Berlin. And both parties walk away satisfied they have prevailed, while in actual fact they have achieved nothing. Days later, Kennedy announces an increase in the U.S. armed forces by over 20% to protect the world from the USSR. He also specifically increases the troops deployed to Berlin. Khrushchev, who is on vacation on the Black Sea at the time, is reportedly furious, but that is only the beginning of his problems. That same month, the U.S. starts deploying mid-range ballistic missiles in Italy. In contrast to ICBMs, MRBMs do exist in large amounts. These missiles now allow the U.S. to strike at the Russian heartland within minutes of an outbreak of war. More MRBMs are positioned in NATO ally Turkey, even closer to Russia. Kennedy is delivering on his promise to close that imaginary missile gap. But to do this quickly, he and his Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, must rely on existing and tested missile technology. And the only missiles that exist in large enough amounts are the PGM-19 Jupiter missiles, developed in 1954 and produced from 1956. These are already dated by 1961, but more importantly, they stand above the ground so they can easily be spotted and destroyed by airstrikes. So they're fairly useless as defensive weapons and only really good for a first strike. It does not take long for the USSR to find out what's going on, and Khrushchev's frustration and fury continue to grow. The next challenge comes when East Germany closes the border between East and West Berlin to the passage of civilians in order to stop the brain bleed of East German academicians technicians and engineers leaving in droves through the open border. Kennedy responds by calling in 148,000 reserves to potentially defend Berlin. In October, after a few incidents where army vehicles are not allowed to cross the border, Kennedy's special envoy to Berlin, retired General Lucius Clay, decides to test the borders to see that U.S. Army vehicles still have, in fact, free passage over that border. 
the test vehicle passes through. However, to be safe, the Americans backed up the test by parking a few tanks on their side of the border. The USSR also parked tanks on its own side. When the Americans see that everything is normal, they call their tanks back. But the Soviets misunderstand this move and think that they're only retreating because of them. So they roll into Friedrichstrasse towards Checkpoint Charlie, the main American army border crossing. The American tanks quickly turn around and take up aggressive positions on their side of the border. So there they stand, fewer than 80 meters apart for the next 48 hours. Kennedy and Khrushchev negotiate who will pull back first. In the end, they agree the Soviets should pull back five meters first, then the Americans, and so on in steps. Although somewhat comical in nature, the incident has serious implications as both sides walk away with the impression that the other side is ready to go to war over Berlin. Both Khrushchev and JFK are actually recorded at the time saying they don't care that much for the fate of Berlin, despite making public statements to the contrary. That does not really matter, though, as the allies of both countries care very much about Berlin. So the USSR and the U.S. are left with little choice. Meanwhile, the pressure on Khrushchev to do something about the overwhelming U.S. nuclear superiority is mounting. By May 1962, he has a plan. He asks Fidel Castro to allow him to do the same thing the U.S. did in Turkey and Italy, put a few MRBMs in their front yard. Castro reluctantly agrees, and the construction of missile sites begins. Despite all of this, during the summer of 1962, Kennedy is still under attack for being too soft on communism and the Soviet Union. So at the White House press conferences on September 4th and September 13th, he publicly warns Cuba and the USSR that the United States will not tolerate any nuclear buildup on Cuba and will take forceful actions to prevent it. He will go on record as regretting this warning. When? All right. So it kind of sounds like he'll be on the record regretting this warning. When? It kind of sounds familiar with what's going on with Ukraine. You've yeah. got, I've got, we need war. We need this. What do you think? Well, maybe there's something else. Hello. Thank you for having me on your show. Uh, I, there's, you've traded down as a host in the last five minutes. Yeah, from, of course. Um, so nice to have you here, my friend. <laughs> uh, I think that, you know, who was it? H.L. Macon, I think it was, said that American politics, where's the effect? It's a succession of trotting out hobgoblins to scare the American public into then so leaders can do what they want. Obviously, Ukraine is much more complicated than that. Yeah. I don't believe, I think it's an extra, I was raised in geopolitics by some real hawks, hawks, some people from the Reagan, you know, people bring up, people bring up that I'm on the Council on Foreign Relations. Have I ever told you who they, got me on Oh, the oh my God, they always say that. And I actually had that on? conversation. Who? Jack Bessie and Cap Weinberger. Can you explain so, to people a, what that is? It's, it's like a credential. Right? It's not what people, it's not some backroom voice thing. And actually, I'll, someday, you're not supposed to talk about it publicly, what goes on in the backroom. Someday, I'll explain. It's it's maybe 100 years ago, it was some backroom voice thing. Special think tank. It's more like a lot of, look, it's a lot of journalists and business leaders and corporate lawyers and people from State Department and backgrounds and state and intelligence and Department of Defense, retired. And the idea is, if when America tries to develop foreign policy, and, and it's over, it's heavily Democrat, heavily Democrat. But as America tries to develop foreign policy in public, things take over. There's a whole bunch of posturing and everybody's posturing and stuff. And sometimes what you need to do is everyone has to get in the, the back room and talking. So it's not posturing, it's not public. And they'd actually cooperate and develop pretty good policies. And I can tell you the Yugoslav war ended there. For example, something I know about the Yugoslav war, we understand it ended with the Dayton Accords. The truth is at the council, Jack Vesey, General Jack Vesey, who was retired, got different, got, you know, had the, under the council auspices, got the different warring parties together and all of them were listened to individually. Then they brought together and talked to, and it was all kind of worked out. And then when it was more or less worked out, then they go to Dayton, Ohio and on an air base, the big shots come in and they spend two days and they pretend to hammer it all out and they sign it. So peace came to that. That was really, so that's the well, kind of thing on a healthy thing. day. Yeah, no, that, that's what people need to understand that organizations yeah. like this guys are 
more like vetted. Like if you're on the CFR, doors open. So some people just get on for the sake of getting <laughs> yeah, and it's changed. I saw Kiss. I met Kissinger once, uh, <laughs> and I said uh, he, he asked about the CFR. He said, "Are you enjoying it?" And I, I said, "Sure." He said, "I think it's for impudent yuppies." But anyway, um, he. Uh, but the point is, it's it's more benign, and it's actually overwhelming. Like people in the International Refugee Committee and all kinds of NGOs and journalists who you would think of as being center or left or center. This is not a bunch of plutocrats. Well, it is maybe a bunch of plutocrats. So they're left. <laughs> anyway, so the the people who got me on that were Cap Weinberger and Bessie asked me to do it. So I've never revealed that publicly about Weinberger. Why? So I hold that up as an impeccable hot credential. No one gets to ever say that I'm soft on, you know, and yet Vessi over and over, he died six years ago, a wonderful man. Great man. It still bothers him. Yeah. He, he used to say any world. So this guy fought in World War II. He was the only man in history to go from a private to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. and everything. In the field. Yeah, he was at Anzio, which is a famous battle in World War II Italy, meat grinder. He had a battlefield commission. So he was a real hero, and he's the guy who turned around the military after Vietnam. But he used to say, you know, any world where Russia and the China and the U.S. get along is better than any, any world other where world. we're not get along. And he took me to see once George Shultz and Kissinger discussing the Ukraine situation in 2015, I think. And it was – they thought it was extraordinarily provocative. And these are hawks, hawks. These are Reagan's, you know, joint chiefs and secretary – and they said a moving towards Ukraine and taking making it part of NATO is extraordinarily provocative. NATO and Russia have a special relationship. The church was born in Kiev. You know, Putin could live without taking the Ukraine, but he can't let us take the he can't let NATO take the Ukraine. Europe. Can't let well it's Europe. He doesn't want the US and Europe to take it, because that's Europe, US slash NATO you, and him. And you know, there's this crazy story. I bet you know this. Do you know the story? What's her name? Victoria Newland, I think, was involved in this. Stop. Do you know Yes, her? yes, I do. I've, I've talked about her before. Uh, yeah, <laughs> doesn't surprise me. We have her on audio, too, talking smack. Well, there's the one I was about to tell that story. There were, in 2014, there were three candidates to lead the Ukraine. A pro-Putin Russia guy, a let's join NATO pro-American guy, and a Russian national, I mean, a, a Ukrainian nationalist who just wanted Ukraine to be like Switzerland, something neutral and independent from both parties. And there was a discussion between two U.S. officials, one of female driving to the airport in Kiev, where she's talking to somebody back in D.C. about which one to support. Right. And it's like B or C, B or C. And the Europeans wanted the middle one. And they say with about as much decision as you or I would pick in, you know, picking a hotel to go to, we would, not that we, no. <laughs> well, I might get lucky, but, you know, but then we, uh, not that uh, uh, you're going to give them, I just, I'll, well, you'll they're going to gonna start way. doing the press. We're buds, we're buds. Yeah, I know. Yeah. He so, brought me the chair. I just said I didn't want it, but you guys were complaining. So I went and got it. Yeah. So, uh, so, that they, she says in this phone call, which the F, Russian FSB taped and it's never been denied, they're, they're, these two American officials are deciding who to back. And it's gonna, it could set off World War III. And it is as casual as he could be. And they finally say, ah, fuck it. We'll go with this other guy, the Europeans we get used to. So casual. You think that it's some grandmaster grand, yeah, plan. Yeah. No, it's no. kind of like the way they separated North Korea and South Korea. They just said, let's just pick the 45th degree. And it's like, okay. you want to ask the Koreans? No. We'll just pick that and make it a line. Well, that had been the one that had been actually that had been used back with the Japanese or something too. That was a reinstatement or something. Yeah, it was just really bizarre the way they make just decisions on a whim like that. Do you know about Winston's hiccup? No. When Winston uh, was Lord of the Admiralty after World War One, he's out there floating around on the boat with Sykes Picot or something, as a big and they're carving up the Middle East. They're carving up the Ottoman Empire. And Winston, taking it away from the Turks, yeah, away from the Turks, and when and they carved up new countries. This would be Oman, this would be Saudi Arabia, this with it. And there's one line, I think it's on the border between Saudi and Oman or something. There's like a 20 mile bump with no explanation. They say it was just Churchill hiccuping as he drew the lines and said, no, <laughs> but but having said that, that actually count kind of sounds scary that Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt got together and they just redrew borders across the world without asking the other countries. 
That is kind of terrifying. Well, you know, the mistake that I'll tell you the bet they made and why it worked out badly. What they thought was that instead of drawing countries, say, in the Middle East around ethnic groups and making if you make a country out of an ethnic group like the Kurds or something, then and then you're going to have a concentrated group and they're going to be fighting the countries that are the Alawi Alawi Syrians and the ones that are the Sunni and this. So what they're thinking was, was let's draw a line through it all. Same with Africa. And so we'll break up these tribes and put them across borders and we'll replace that intertribal conflict with just domestic political work. Well, working out. Well, in fact, how'd that work in the long term? Not too good. Yeah. So you have a whole <laughs> bunch of people. Petra, petra. We're going to be redrawing borders in the next 20 years like crazy. Sykes-Pico is the, yeah. Let's just hope that stays out of America because, you know, we're going to win this. We're going to win this. What do you think of Canada Day? Oh, Canada. I mean, you know, Canada hasn't shown what it's got yet. Like, we're saying they're doing awesome. Like, I have a bunch of Canadians in a Tory Says Canada group. And I haven't neglected them. It's just that it's not time yet. They have to. You'll see. But like, you what they did back. with the truckers was. But you know about the vax mandate today? They killed the tax. And then the provinces came out and said, we're killing it too. You know, when tyrants bend their knees thinking that they're going to get make a concession that's going to buy them some time, it's just the opposite. It's, it's, it's over. Yeah, it emboldened. But that's what that's what we have to do here for a lot of things. Isn't it embarrassing that Canada did that before we did? Are your grandparents, your granddads, this would have been over in a New York minute if we were talking about two generations they, ago. They would have been slaughtered. They would have been dragged out on the street, tied on the back of a horse, and then run around. Any of these government officials doing this? Yeah. This is crazy. What happened to you folks? So, guys, um, I I just did an impromptu one. I wanted to bring up the bunkers and the idea of us actually filing a complaint. Um, And I'm going to talk with a few legal minds to see how we can do it. The idea is, you know, we get audited by the IRS a lot, right? And so, you know, I've written a lot of articles about Schiff's love affair with Ukraine. And did you know that there was a, con- a, a, a thing that he facilitated with a guy named Igor Pasternak? Do you know this guy? Okay. He makes blimps for a living, like Goodyear blimps, right? That's his specialty. He's Ukrainian. Mm. Um, Schiff gave him, I think it was either 50 or 75 million. I don't remember off the top of my head. Get this, dollars, taxpayer dollars, to think. Do not give me a prototype. I just want you to come up with ideas mm. of blimps for espionage. Then the guy threw him a party because he was running. And then oh, he went and gave this blimp maker 50 to $75 million to make M16s for the Ukrainians. Mm. But the thing is, he's not an arms dealer. He does blimp. So I think maybe we should be asking for some change and find out why we're handing also, out uh, so much money. It's also corrupt. It's also corrupt. It's great that people are getting. Yeah, no, and 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 they're the ones that are saying it too. It's time to audit them. And did you we're tell ready. me that they shut down the GL website? Oh my gosh! Yes. Wait, hold on. Let me see in my Telegram. So citizens can't communicate. Wait, no, yeah. Okay. What the hell's the point of the GL? I know. Wait, no, no. I I kid you not. Hold on. That's hilarious. Hold on. Let me find the pictures. So That's I, actually so you really can good. see it. Not only the GAO, but the OIG of the DOJ shut down too on the same day. Come on, where is it? I didn't, okay, here we go. So this is the OIG. This is where you would submit a complaint. It's actually down now. It doesn't exist. And they've taken down the whole page. Where is the, the GAO, you guys? I know I shared it in my main feed. Everyone, there it is. It says that, um, that citizens and citizens groups, we do not undertake anymore. That's their job. That's their new, um, they just went back live. But citizens aren't allowed. <laughs> submit. They shut it down. I, my listeners can tell you more on that because they've I been love, watching do, it. Do they know your big news about like Monday? Do they know your role in getting the Halderman MacGuffin pride loose? Did you see my little thing? I know. Like that? I know. Is it? And the thing is, I was, I was, I was on the phone with my attorneys, and I was like, "This is terrible. This is terrible. They're getting ahead of me." And we haven't served him yet. And I can tell you, there were some really good people out there. We went to two different states, searched all the addresses. We had a stock to find him. And this is average citizens, right? Oh, when you got, you and he got served the day before she was to decide. Because I was like, if she's going to release the redacted report, then they're going to be like, deal with that one. Mm-hmm. 
She's frozen first. So I served him first. So we have to say thank you to Jalen, who found it. Jalen is a listener of mine from Ohio. Hi, Jalen. Did you yeah. track him down in yeah. Michigan? Well, he's 18. He went to the University of Michigan. He's blind, by the way. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. He's blind, and he Boy, can see things like the way he researches. Wow. No, he would fascinate. He actually was disenrolled. Yeah, he was disenrolled because he didn't get the vaccine. Can you believe that? I'm so sorry. They disenrolled him. Yeah. But um, we'll get that fixed for Jalen. So, so he, Jaylen, tracked, he tracked he tracked everything down. Did he track him down, down in Michigan? Or where yeah, was he? he was in Michigan. So wow. we tracked him down. Right on, Jalen. And that was great. And Jalen did it. And he, he, and he has no eyes. And yet he's on the internet as if he's one with it. Um, uh-huh. He's from Ohio. I want to meet Jalen sometime. Yeah. Well, when you come up to Ohio... Um, we're going to make sure that we bring Jalen down from Michigan. He comes down for our Ohio meetups every Sunday. Listen, we have invited Sydney. I'm Sydney, I'm sorry. Tori, <laughs> the other Sydney. We have invited Tori. Do they know about your announcement coming out Monday, or is that about Which the – SOS? Mm-hmm. Oh, I told them yesterday. Okay. But I can't campaign. She can't campaign, and we can't let her campaign because it's not a political thing. So she will be speaking, but not on that. But Tori will be coming to the Reawaken America thing in Dayton on October 18th. Yeah, so we could talk about what the people in Ohio have been doing. And, love it. And, love and it. yeah, and I think the Ohio people will love that. Um, but not as a candidate, because remember, nice it's not good for like, you know, you don't want them to say, oh, well, you're doing your show and that should be your campaign financing or something. And I don't need it. See, you Meanwhile, know why? Because Zuckerberg we are grassroots. Gives them billions in in promote and Google gives them all this value and how they what they do with their algorithms. That should be considered in kind. Yeah, but see, my campaign is actually going to beat that because we're not going to use Google algorithms. We're going to use old school. Person to person, no, seriously, and banners and flyovers and, and 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 billboards in your face, because the people that that, that are there now, Frank took a Frank LaRose took a bunch of money from Facebook. He bent the knee and changed all that election stuff. And then there's this other guy named John Adams that's walking in, total career politician, worked on the board of United Way. That's like. AFL CIO front mm. that makes you and and like even the governor race we've got the wine and then we've got this guy named Renacy he's on the board of elections like where's he going where's he going like it's like is they're walking in odd. there I, well for me personally that like when I saw him he reminded me of like Nicolas Cage in like the worst film beat up oh remember that one well there's a lot of bad movies that Cage I love has done I know I know I do too he does have the funniest line of all time uh, what's the most one of my favorite movie? movie lines can I give you the favorite movie which I'm one sure? remember in Con Air Con Air which is the one where he's a prisoner on a plane yeah, and the yeah, plane yeah. escapes and there's all this stuff and at some point is through this contrived series of circumstances the feds who are chasing them one of them drives a fancy blue Corvette which is parked somewhere their plane takes off and a grappling hook full is out and it ends up chaining the Corvette and you have this big transport aircraft flying through the air with a Corvette behind Corvette it. Behind and it. do you remember Nicholas Cage looks at the back and what he says? What do you say? He says, you know, on any other day that would seem strange. <laughs> <laughs> I've said well, that to myself. Well, we, we, I was actually saying that with my lawyers today. They're like the stuff that we have to do now, like cases that are being filed, attorneys can't rely on the law anymore. And it's like, there's always a first. Like, we have to do things within the law, within the tools that we have, policies and methods that we've never thought of. It's like mental legal gymnastics where we're trying to fix things. Have you watched what happened in Wisconsin on Saturday? There was another one of these hearings where citizens, 300 citizens, 350 showed up with stories with affidavits about what happened. I understand this lit Wisconsin on fire, this little hearing. Well, hopefully the Halderman report will take it right over. When do you, when do you think you'll get the uh, an answer? By Valentine's Day. You think he's going to supply it? Well, you have 14 days. I mean, he could deny to do it, but why would he? Uh, I'm not. He wants it out. Well, I want it because it's going to, I'm going to take his and be like, okay, here's his, here's mine. Look at the common factors. All right. There's another person that's saying what I'm saying about the cots. You know, I want to validate myself because they defame me. They shouldn't get away with that. They stuff. should not. They shouldn't get away with you it. You should get an examine. You should end up with a few plantations in the South. Why not? Yeah. I Why, well, I, I see them. They sued everyone for $1.6 billion. I made it $1.7 Can I join your suit? I like your number better. <laughs> well, you know, I These can actually intervene in Sydney's and, and Mike's because they cited me a lot in their suits. 
But um, uh, for me, I just want to get the defamation out of the way and through defamation and then supporting. Yeah. Listen, we had got some business to do. I just got home. We got some business to do. So you guys, thank you. Some patriotic shit to get done. Yeah, we do. We do. So God bless everyone. Have a great evening. And here is one of my favorite mashups. Have you heard this? Good night, everyone. Thanks for touring. I love that picture. How are you doing? Do you remember? I can feel.